Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 141. First, a little admin, a big thank you for tuning in. The series has passed 1 million listens. The response really has been staggering. When I began planning the History of South Africa podcast a few years ago, it was literally a step into the deep end of audio production. Nothing can really truly prepare you for such an enterprise. And this, of course, is a solo job. It's me, the hundreds of books collected over decades, the journals, the papers, the traveling, the experience, and you, the listener. So, without resorting to too much grandiose baloney, let me just say, really, thank you. Without your support and wonderful emails and messages, this would have been an awful lot harder. With that little detour out of the way, back to our story for this week. We need to switch our gaze back to the Northern Cape, circa 1838 and 9, and spend time discussing what was going on along the Orange River, that in so many ways is similar to the Nile and the Niger Rivers. The Orange River, of course, is smaller, but it also flows through an extremely arid zone like the Nile and the Niger. And like those waterways, it is a lifeline for animal and human life over a large area. It was towards this riparian zone that the colonists were expanding, and ahead of them the Khoi, the Urlam, and the Tora. Then the Voortrekkers left in their hundreds. The flood turned to thousands. They weakened the Cape Frontier substantially because it was a loss of military power for the settlers. This happened as the Trekkers themselves destabilized the interior of the country and the British administration feared that they'd face dispossessed Africans who would become a nightmare as they entered the Cape economic and war refugees. Examples were the Amamfengu, who had fled them for Trani. Now they faced more destabilization as hundreds of men riding horses and carrying guns made their way out of the Cape. By this time in the colony, most of previous Governor Benjamin de Urban's comprehensive program of reforms had been accomplished, including the establishment of a legislative council, the introduction of a revised Charter of Justice, the emancipation of the slaves, and the beginnings of municipal government so that the locals could manage themselves. Many things had changed, and very quickly, and from now, change and fast change was the operative word. One of the most interesting aspects of Southern African history is the speed at which matters come to a head, or political movements appear and then disappear. Some would think they're very slow, but as South Africans know, as you've traveled the world, we appear far more worldly wise than our counterparts in many other distant lands. That comes from living on a continent where nothing comes easy. As we continue with the series, the narrative of haste will be our companion. When we look at the goings-on, we must extend our gaze beyond the borders, most of which are merely lines on maps. Regions are tied together through the shared use of water and other resources. In this episode, we're going to look north and try to understand the link between the people of the Cape and the people of Namibia. Two people in particular, the San and the Urlam, and their relationship with the Orange River. Between 1800 and 1839, the San had been virtually exterminated as a people. They had stood in the way of the first Trekboers through the turn of the century, and the expansion could only continue into the welcoming environment of the eastern Transorangia region after the San of the Sneerberg had been pacified. 
This had been both a violent and a subtle and insidious practice, including gift-giving, mainly alcohol. Even peaceful trekkers had undermined the sand resistance by pure dint of infiltration into their territory. Once the colonists had established themselves beyond the Sneerbach, the sand were unable to prevent the destruction of their lifestyle. It was similar for the Khoikhoi. Those who were not killed or captured retreated deep into the deserts of the inhospitable areas of Bushmanland, so they could survive. It wasn't long before the Boer, the Bastards and the Griqua commandos hunted the sand down, determined to turn the Dorsland into an area that they regarded as Bushman-free, free of the sand. And it was through this period that the Khoikhoi and Bastard pastoralists, the Urlam, appeared in the Dorsland. They were being driven in turn by the pressure of colonists who were taking up permanent residence in Bushmanland. They survived for a time in scattered groups around places like Craddock, but here too they were to be no more. A man called Diakam of the Sand saw his people wiped out in the mountains of the Eastern Cape. He was determined that his melancholy story would never be forgotten, and missionaries took down his words later in the 19th century. His aching poem of catastrophe goes like this. The wind, when we die, our own wind blows. For we, the Klum people, each of us has his wind. Each one has a cloud that comes out when he dies. Therefore, the wind, when we die, the wind blows dust. Covering the tracks, the footprints we made, when walking about living, with nothing the matter when we still knew nothing of sickness and death. If not for this wind, our spool would still show. Our spool would still show us as if we still lived. That is a mournful tale. The spool of a people who predated the Nguni, the Tswana, the Khoikhoi, the Europeans. These original first people of South Africa were now disappearing. The winds of change were blowing their spool away. And there was an obvious correlation between the San and the Kora people. The Kora were various clans who lived in a fluid situation in the interior of the country, and anyone who chose a raiding, roving mode of existence were likely to be called Korana, regardless of their ancestry. Only a small section of these were truly Kora, where, as the San are hunter-gatherers, the Korana and the Kora were pastoralists who were nomadic and who sneered at the sedentary life associated with agriculture. There is a driving need to move to explore in the human psyche, and as such the nomadic people were precursors of the trek boers. The Torah political organization was loose, to say the least, and leadership was through force of personality rather than through hereditary status. They had been moving away from the Cape, their ancestors escaped slaves, sand hunter-gatherers, mixed-race former servants, they had little use for the ways of the Cape Colony. They avoided the Cape agents, the Landrosts, Falcornets, the law, such as it was. But they had made excellent use of two major introductions into South Africa, the gun and the horse. These people were some of the most highly efficient raiders of their time anywhere, adept at rustling stock from their settled farming neighbours, whether Khoi, Griqua or Boer, a group. Similar to the Griqua were the Urlam, who spoke a variation of Dutch that we now call Afrikaans, led by men like Jonker Afrikaner, 
who played a significant role in the establishment of Windhoek, the Namibian capital, where he built a church in 1840. Here is the connection with the Cape and the proof of our connected histories down at the southern end of this vast continent. Yonkur Afrikaner may have ended up wedged between the Herero, Ovambo and the Nama people up on the Namibian escarpment, but he actually hailed from Tulbach in the Cape, which is near Ribek, Castile and Ceres. That's an awfully long way to Vintuk, a direct trip of 1,400 kilometers, and Afrikaner, of course, did not go there by the direct route. The Korana or Kora, on the other hand, were a subgroup of the Khoikhoi and spoke the Khoi language at first, but then began to converse in this new felt lingua franca, Afrikaans. They only pitch up in the historical record when their raiding and pillaging intersected with the more settled folks, for it was then that their word and their deeds would reach Cape Town. Most non-Kora considered them lawless brigands, pirates of the sea of felt and searing heat, Bushman's land and Krikwa land and all the way into Namibia. Some of the Korana ended up near Luderitz at about this time in our story, 1838 and 1839, although back then Luderitz was called Angra Pakwenya. The African and mixed-race inhabitants of little Namakwa land were trading animals and skins as well as other goods from the felt with American whalers there. French naval officers reported in 1835 that an American brig had come to Angra Pequena solely to trade, and that the American captain had expected to purchase between two and 3,000 cattle from the Nama in the interior, and then to return to the United States with a shipload of hides. How amazing, in this long association between the west coast of Southern Africa and the USA, a relationship that is unlike many other parts of West Africa, because it did not directly include slavery. Further south, there were repeated attempts made to crush the Etora through the 19th century, and they formed the most significant non-Bantu adversaries of white expansion. They were able to survive because they occupied one of the most feared natural fortresses in southern Africa, a region between modern Uppington and the Okhrabis Falls. The Orange River spreads out to form a multitude of small islands of varying length and breadth. During this period, these islands were covered in thick bush and were thought of as part of a kind of water jungle. The vegetation was so thick that the channels between them were often hidden, providing great cover for sharpshooters who would pick off their blundering adversaries. It was also very difficult just to get there. The series of islands in a wide, shallow channel have been intensively used for thousands of years, as the historical data show. The Orange River is one of the world's most turbid delivering 60 million tons of sediment each year to the western margin of South Africa, and it underlines the fertility of the floodplain. Most of this sediment comes from soil erosion, which is actually increasing and has become a threat to sustainable farming. Above the Caledon River confluence, it's affected by the high rainfall and topographic relief of the Drakensberg Mountains, and this produces most of the Orange River's suspended load. And much of that load ends up in the Namib Desert after flowing out to sea. Having meandered along this river as a journalist following a flood that threatened the cotton and vineyards in early 1988, I was amazed at the verdant wetlands in the midst of a parched and desiccated wilderness, which at that point was being churned and violently thrashed by the power of the floods. It was indeed like the Nile.
The geology and geomorphology of the Orange River is quite complex. In the middle section, starting from the confluence with the Vaal River, it flows in a southwesterly direction towards Brieska, where it enters extremely broken territory. These are the limestone and dolomites, forming the Kaap Plateau. Below Brieska, the rock barriers cause the river to pass through deep gorges, hard rocks, part of a band of ironstone, an important source of raw materials for the first peoples who appeared here and used these fine-grained rocks as their formal tools. Below the modern town of Uppington, the countryside opens up into a wide floodplain all the way to the Ukhrabi's Falls, and this section has the steepest gradient, falling one and a half meters every kilometer. By 1000 AD, a group called the Kakamas people were burying their dead around the Ukhrabi's Falls, and these graves have provided archaeologists with a treasure trove of artifacts as well as cultural items. From bone analysis, we know they were directly related to the Khoi and the San. The graves feature two distinct styles of burial, which is even more interesting. Those near the falls feature low stone cairns with ashes stuffed into the burial shaft, while the graves further up the river, near the islands, have high conical cairns and far more stones stuffed into the grave shaft. Remarkably, in 1994, a grave was discovered south of here that had brass and copper and iron dating back to around 600 AD. The site called Jakalsbach was found to contain a corroded small knife blade or possibly an axe-like scraper. We know that iron smelting and working was going on, but it's fascinating to hear about these specific examples. The little Namakwa, as they were called, did not smelt these objects themselves at first. They traded these metal goods from the Baklaping. However, by the mid-18th century, they were reported to be able to smelt iron, showing off their skills for visiting European explorers. And yet, there is no evidence that they mined the iron and copper ore themselves. They traded these crucial metals from early Twana farmers. It is the Okhrabi's Falls that are an important reference point. Over the centuries, it was the divide between the Middle and Lower Orange and the boundary between the Namakwa herders to the west and the Inikwa people who lived on the islands of the open floodplain above the falls. Down from the falls, the river flows through the quartzites and conglomerates of the Kaibos beds, then turns north into more broken country. Here is the Richtersfeld a mysterious and perhaps bewitching place where the temperatures can top 53 degrees Celsius in midsummer, and then mists bring dew that pours off the rocks like an alien rain. This mist has a name, Malmokis, they call it. Things change in winter by a significant margin. It becomes icy cold as the wind blows off the Atlantic, and the very rocks themselves shatter as these massive temperature changes split the very earth. Quick note for the modern console game player, the Richtersfeld appeared in a first-person shooter game called Battlefield 2042, launched in 2021. So it's not entirely unknown to a phalanx of global youth. Back to our story. While the wetlands teem with life, this is a dry area, and always was. The vegetation is called Orange River Broken Felt down on the west, where grasses are sparse and animals need space to survive. The people who lived close to the Okhrabis lived off the river, eating the smallmouth yellowfish that can grow to over 7 kilograms, the Orange River mudfish, then the largemouth yellowfish, which was a relatively large behemoth at 21 kilograms, and the sharp-toothed catfish, which is another monster 
that can actually grow to over 50 kilograms. Birds were drawn to this environment over the centuries, or millennia to be more accurate, and their niqua trapped a wide range, ducks, cormorants, sand grouse, guinea fowl, franklin doves and pigeons. Children were usually the trappers, capturing doves, for example, by using an adhesive glue made from the seeds of the Cape mistletoe. The eggs of Egyptian geese, herons and ostriches were used as water containers. The people ate snakes and tortoises and even locusts. When the locusts swarmed, the Nama or the Nikwa people would set fire to the grass, then gather up the roasted insects, break off their heads and wings, and then chew on the crunchy protein with relish. This was a rich diet. The children seemed to have a great time, according to the first travellers who recorded their lives, practising hunting techniques on the lizards, then cooking and eating them. They'd also keep an eye on the ants. After these little insects had collected seeds in their nests, the children would raid and eat the seeds. They'd also harvest natural cucumbers and climb the trees to gather honey and even squeeze euphorbia latex into pools to poison large animals like the quacha. South of this part of the Orange River lie the flats of Bushman's Land, which stretch almost 250 kilometers to the Huntam Mountains of North Calvinia. Travelling trek boers from Namakuland, the Huntam and the Bokkefelt only moved through here in around three months of summer when rains fell. It was so parched, even the wells would dry out quickly after the summer rains. All travellers here knew there was only one sure way to cross this hellish flatland, and that was through the valley of the Zuck and Hartabias rivers, which flow very occasionally from the Huntam and the Kariabach to the Orange River near Kakamas. Most of the year, these riverbeds are bone-dry, but they are flanked in places by thick bush. Great to hide behind, and a raiding party of Karana would use these thickets to obfuscate their presence surviving on water that could only be found in the dry beds, if you were prepared to dig deeply enough. When these attackers withdrew, the commandos or the trailing party would be forced to take the same route north, making them prone to an easy ambush. Scouts would wait up, watching for the colonials to approach. There was very little element of surprise. There were two other obvious routes from the west along the Orange, starting at Namakwaland, or from the east at Griqualand West, which made this part of the river an ideal jumping-off point to raid the colony. In both cases, the Corona would find it rather simple to avoid their would-be assailants. The routes were monitored constantly. However, they had other and bigger problems closer to home. I explained in a much earlier episode about the people of the Middle Orange who squabbled amongst each other violently along these islands and the banks of the Orange. The first description, though, of these people that was written down came from Hendrik Vicker, a deserter from the VOC, the Dutch East India Company. When he staggered back to Cape Town, part of his penance was to hand over his diary of the life for the people of the Orange River Islands. Vicar was Finnish. He was employed by the VOC in 1773 and worked as a clerk in Cape Town in the company's hospital. Wicker, though, had to leave in 1775 as he could not pay his gambling debt and was publicly insulted on the streets of Cape Town, so he left to explore the north of the colony where he stayed for four years. He described the rituals and customs of the Khoisan people of the islands, and scientists have used his records since. Archaeology has confirmed his writings. Some of the interesting facts follow. For instance, the Nikwa people of the Great Orange River who lived along the banks and on the islands above the Okhrabis Falls had a considerable number of sheep and cattle. The only plant they cultivated was dacha, Indian hemp. 
They would also pick natural tubers, melons, and so on, but they didn't cultivate these plants in the true sense they merely scavenged their vegetables. To the west of them were the Nama people, to the east, other Khoisan, along with a kind of hybrid group of Khoi and Tswana. And these people were the intersection between the clans of the Enikwa and the San, who lived further away from the river. They were largely hunter-gatherers, although some could be found who did have small herds. So, in this confusion that marked the first quarter of the 19th century, the area of the Middle Orange lay midway between the main centre of power on the northern border of the Cape in Griqualand and Namaqualand, and there was no real stabilising influence here. Yaha Afrikaner Africana led his people to the mushrooming mission stations by the 1830s, leaving the Central Orange to anarchy. By the 1830s, the old raiding existence was no longer possible in much of the Orange Free State and Griqua Land West. The settled communities, both Boer and Griqua, were growing stronger, and displaced people moved down the river towards these island retreats. One of the Korana by the name of Stierman began to raid the Boer homesteads at the start of the 1800s and gained real attention of the authorities in Cape Town when they attacked and killed three Boer families living around 60 kilometers south of the Orange River at Bachasport. He made off with five wagons, 5,000 sheep, 200 head of cattle and 70 horses. Stierman kept up these raids over the next few years, hitting all the main border districts in the north of the Cape. Clan William, Beaufort West, However, he was not satisfied with raiding just these districts, so he turned northeast and took aim at the Tswana people in southern Griqualand. But by 1834 he was gone, killed by a commander, and the remnants of his anarchic group made their way deep into Namibia and were assimilated by other Khoisan communities in the semi-desert. After Sirman's death, the Trekboers were left alone. For a period of at least 20 years, the various mixed-race and Urlang groups who departed from the Cape region found richer pickings in southern and central Namibia, and even trekked all the way to the Angolan border where they lived and traded with the Ovambo along the Kuneni River. By 1843, these same people were reportedly trading with ships anchored at Balfish Bay, exchanging cattle and sheep for guns and alcohol. The Nama were blessed with huge herds of cattle, and Urlam, like Kubus boys, lived alongside them. The Nama lived in large settlements between 800 and 1500 citizens. Each was ruled by a chief whose following depended on his ability to accumulate and distribute wealth. The laborious task of digging wells in the dry riverbeds was assigned to the young unmarried men, who could only marry when the elders lent them cattle required to pay for their brides. Thus the youngsters were often banished to the outlying cattle posts, where they would look after the borrowed cattle. The relationship between the Nama and the Urlams was complex. The latter spoke the strange South African Dutch, more Afrikaans even then, and also dressed like the Boers. The Urlam rode horses and crucially were armed with guns. We know this wasn't a simple matter of the men with guns ruling the roost, at least at first. The Urlam were incorporated in the Nama system to some extent, providing the Nama chiefs with defensive power and providing them with supplies of goods they could not easily obtain, like textiles and metal implements, even alcohol, in exchange for land. The number of Urlams increased between 1810 and 1840, particularly after the establishment of a London Missionary Society station at Bleder Verwacht near Bethanies, 
part of the Hardup region of southern Namibia. So bear with me as we tour this hard land north of the Orange very quickly, because there's a unique building there. The area around Bathani originally belonged to the Red Nation, a Khoikhoi group, and the main sub-tribe of the Nama. Also, they were the oldest Nama group who speak the Damara Nama language. They got their name from the red ochre they daubed over their bodies, an ancient custom as you'll know by now. The Urlam Nama link was also pretty old, going back to the beginning of the 18th century, when Urlamas managed to negotiate settlement rights and settled at Bethany. The London Missionary Society founded the town, but there was a shortage of the English men in black, and because of the cooperation between the London and Rhenish Missionary Society at the time, they sent a German missionary called Reverend Heinrich Schmielen. He arrived in 1814, and his House. Amazingly, these modest stone buildings are regarded as the very first proper stone dwellings ever built in Namibia. They're protected as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. For our friend Schmielen, well, his story, like many other missionary tales, is one of frustration. Because he left Bethany in 1822, the local tribes refused his repeated and impassioned pleas to attend church. He was not alone. It was a time of much frustration for the missionaries. Although they were having a surprising success in a place that was to become known as Lesotho, King Meshweshwe was hitting his stride, and as you'll hear next episode, this period at the end of the 1830s was fruitful for the Sotho leader and his people. There was also the ongoing friction between the English and the French missionaries there, which added an extra layer of complexity. More about that next episode. If you can, please rate the series on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility. And to contact me, head off to desmondlatham.blog or you can direct message me on x at deslatham. Until next, goodbye.